My early high school years were tough. Like many, I was so awkward, so deeply insecure, and felt very unpretty because no boys were paying me no mind. And before it had a diagnosis, I spent my life wrestling with generalized anxiety disorder. I say all this to say, when you're in strange, uncertain times, you are in search of things that bring you comfort, that speak to you, that console you. The timing was perfect. Mary J. Blige's My Life album dropped my freshman year of high school when I needed this album most. I played it constantly. It soothed me. I found comfort every time I listened. And I was not alone. It was a critical success and sealed Mary's deepening kinship with her fans. If you look at history, critics note the My Life album was another game changer. With What's the 411, she ushered in a shifting landscape of sound and ghetto fab attitude. With My Life, she basically gave us a personal hip-hop soul blues ballad and rewrote the playbook again. This album spoke to a generation of women, especially Black girls and women, in a way that's almost impossible to articulate. The album was created during a dark period for Mary. She's been vocal about her struggles with drugs, alcohol, depression, and abuse during the making of this album. The production is flawless, many songs using classic soul samples over her personalized lyrics and sultry vocals contextualize the emotional geography of love, loss, heartbreak, and personal triumph. Songs like Be Happy, I'm the Only Woman, My Life, Mary Jane, and her devastating Rose Royce cover of I'm Going Down, to name a few. Mary comes from a lineage of blues women who, for generations, have been aiding us in their musical ministry through our own personal struggles, helping us heal. You can hear it when Billie Holiday chokes every syllable out of I'm a Fool to Want You, when Dinah Washington takes us to the bottom of the ocean on this bitter earth, Etta James saying she'd rather go blind than to see her man walk away, Aretha cried out about a no good heartbreaker, a liar and a cheater who she couldn't stop loving. And y'all, Phyllis Hyman bruised the stratosphere when she told us what it's like living all alone. We cling to this kind of emotional honesty. All our inner turmoil and contradictions laid bare. All these women are a part of the spiritual fabric of the My Life album in some way. And all these women, like Mary, are so much more than their pain. The album has dimensions. There is a tremendous amount of depth and interiority here. And it's mesmerizing to experience. There are few albums that feel this naked, this vulnerable, this truthful, and are sonically this amazing. What am I doing, I thought. The assignment was clear. Pick an artist and present their bio to the class with one accompanying song. Seventh grade music class. I loved Miss Rhymers. I didn't love that all eyes would be on me after such an intimate and beyond my year song played. A song that wasn't youthful, fun, or typical. Anita Baker's fifth album, Rhythm of Love, was just released, so she was strongly back on my radar, sharing music that just made me feel alive, creating space for love to be a source of strength, not weakness in the damp cynicism of the 90s. So when Baker's Body and Soul played on the Music Room sound system and Miss Rhymer's subtle expression of approval rang past my temporary hearing impairment due to my crippling anxiety, I remember that this was about my own individual creative expression and pursuit of educational interests. Once the song ended, I walked to the front of the room, looking down at the deafening creaking of bronze, the wooden floor, not trusting the judgment of my peers, and ensuring my feet were actually carrying me to the center of the space. Paper in hand, my heart literally beating out of my chest, my desire to talk about Anita Baker gave me courage. I wanted to let this small group in on the magic this artist wielded. Many of our parents had already been caught up in the rapture since 1986. Before and after that presentation, 
that seed that blossomed into almost every professional endeavor I participate in now, I listened to Rhythm of Love from beginning to end regularly. It was a respite from the more rapidly paced R&B rap, rock and pop, collecting many of us in its tailspin. Just close your eyes and listen to Sometimes I Wonder Why, and you're no longer where you are. Baker's voice, her command of, and partnership with every instrument, as much of a star on the track as she is, is its own form of meditation. From critics to album sales, Rhythm of Love was welcomed with open arms. A bow on Baker's hat of artistic accomplishment, she was still proving she could break through the ever-increasing takeover of up-tempos, rhymes, and raunch. But this would be the last time we would hear from her in the decade. With a label change, a tour, and motherhood, Anita took a break, never giving the impression that she had anything to prove by extending herself just to stay relevant. Even gracing Mary J. Blige with words of encouragement, thanking her for picking up where she left off. I'm screenwriter and music enthusiast, Robin Cheney. I'm writer and professor Ashley Blackwell, and this is Rhythm and Schooled. Breaking down 90s R&B, one year at a time. Episode five, 1994, I Wanna Be Down. On October 17, 1994, a single entitled Brand New by a female R&B quartet called Sista dropped on the airwaves. The vocals were on point, the track was pure hip-hop soul, an infectious hypnotic mid-tempo funk groove written and produced by Jodeci's Devante Swing and a then-unknown Timbaland. The video is what I remember most. On a rooftop, four beautiful, perfectly ponytailed black girls with one pant leg rolled up, moving in synchronized, too cool for school fashion. The lead vocals were sung by a then unknown Missy Elliott. Yes, y'all. Before she became one of the most innovative artists music has ever seen, Missy Misdemeanor Elliott was in a girl group, giving us a genuine R&B bop that still feels as fly as it did when it was released. Eventually, Sister would disband, and Missy Elliott and Timbaland would join forces to make some of the most sonically imaginative R&B and hip-hop ever heard. Missy would also become an acclaimed rapper and songwriter in her own right. We often grant the label of genius to many male musicians. There's often hesitancy when it comes to women. But as you will discover, as you continue to follow along on this podcast, and also do some homework on musical legacy and lineage, you will find that Missy Elliott is one of the most groundbreaking artists ever, a musical genius. She changed the game, constantly reinventing herself and providing an endless array of R&B artists with some of their biggest hits and some of the best music of their careers. Nineteen ninety four did not slouch when it came to controversy, sensationalism, and a massive morning that changed a corner of the music industry. It was reported that on April fifth, nineteen ninety four, Kurt Cobain, frontman and musician for the grunge group Nirvana, committed suicide in his Seattle, Washington home, leaving a generation of fans stunned and somber for an extended period of time. MTV News predictably aired a special program on the matter where the subject of suicide was front and center, addressing the issue candidly and honestly. Kurt was described as sweet, gentle, funny, 
And more importantly, he was human. And the way that our physical and mental anguish could completely make us feel isolated and hopeless. He was one of the most non-rock star rock stars to probably ever share his art with the world. In other news, Lisa burned the house down, said Rosanda Thomas, better known as Chili. At least that's how I remember it from VH1's Behind the Music on TLC. Left Eye famously or infamously, depending on which side of the nuanced debate you're on, set fire to her boyfriend's then-NFL player for the Atlanta Falcons, Andre Risen Sneakers. The fire spread throughout the mansion they shared, burning it to the ground on June 9, 1994. Sparking, forgive the pun, inspiration for Vibe Magazine's November 1994 issue, where all three ladies appear on the cover in firefighter gear behind big bright yellow words, TLC fires it up. All eyes were also on Madonna when she was a guest on The Late Show with David Letterman, saying the F word 14 times, as well as propositioning him to smell her underwear another few times, creating a massive headache for censors. But this was Madonna, probably feeling herself, pardon another pun, yet some more, because later that year in the fall, Bedtime Stories, album number six, would show more harsher critics how serious she was about making great music post-erotica backlash. Working with Titans Dallas Austin, Babyface, Dave Jam Hall, more on his mark on 90s R&B a little later, and an impressive spread of soul interpolations, Madonna showed improved her intelligence, insight, and desire to always expand her music artistry palette while reminding haters that she's not sorry, forever being the Madonna from Michigan to the mud club dance pop punk scene. Bedtime Stories also wields Take a Bow, that song with Babyface that became her longest running number one single in the United States. But the top song of the year was the Billboard number one hero by Mariah Carey. An estimated 350,000 people showed up at Woodstock 94 in upstate New York, held to celebrate 25 years since the original festival. The lineup included Nine Inch Nails, Bob Dylan, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Green Day, and Salt and Pepper, just to name a few. In film, the biggest of the year were Forrest Gump, The Lion King, True Lies, The Santa Claus, and Pulp Fiction. This year also saw the passing of beloved comedic actor John Candy of a heart attack on March 4, 1994 in Mexico. He was most known for planes, trains, and automobiles, Uncle Buck, Spaceballs, as well as a few more classics. And probably the biggest, most riveting and talked about TV series was NBC's ER. Wow, 1994 was quite a year. The death of Kurt Cobain was absolutely devastating. I think I mentioned this before, Nirvana was kind of my gateway to my love and adoration for rock music. You know, in school, I remember how shook up everyone was when Kurt died. There was just something really special about him. He was such a tremendous influence on the shifting landscape of rock music during this time. John Candy's passing was hard, too. I mean, Uncle Buck and Planes, Trains, and Automobiles are two of my favorite comedies, mainly because of John. There was something so endearing about him. You know, I think he's like such a profoundly gifted actor. And on the podcast, The Rewatchables, there is an episode about planes, trains, and automobiles. And they delve into what kind of made John Candy like this uniquely talented actor. So I just tell everyone to check that out. And on a much different note, Left Eye Burning That House Down and that vibe cover are forever etched in my brain. That was such a crazy time, pre-social media, and everyone was talking about it. Rappers are using it as lines in their songs. I mean, matter of fact, Left Eye eventually used it on the Ladies' Night remix. It was wild times, wild times. On a much lighter note, Bedtime Stories era Madonna was truly something to witness. That album is still very much top-tier Madonna, and I love it. She definitely continued to push boundaries of pop culture and of music. 
Madonna landing on top of the R&B charts was a big deal. Working with the likes of Babyface, Dave Jam Hall, and Dallas Austin made really made sense to me. Not sure how to really describe it, but the album felt like an organic evolution of her sound in a more R&B-like framework. Also, I remember this endless acclaim about Pulp Fiction being this really revolutionary film because of its unique storytelling approach. And see, this is the year where I bought my first screenwriting book. So I was fascinated with Tarantino's work and really enjoyed Pulp Fiction. And definitely, I mean, as I matured as a movie buff, I appreciated and understood even more why Pulp Fiction was so trailblazing. My whole family was watching ER. We were hooked. Like, that was great epic television. I think it's like every Thursday night. Yeah, it was on Thursdays. So just going back to Kurt Cobain a little bit, I remember Kurt Cobain's death being reported on Channel One. For me, it was Heart Shaped Box. That was a turning point for my interest in grunge because I remember the first time I heard it on the radio, that began my deeper dive into the genre. I always liked Kurt's energy in interviews, the band and their music, and it always sucks to reflect on what would have been for people you feel left the earth a little too soon. I mostly remember John Candy from his Saturday morning cartoon show, Camp Candy. I do remember that show. (laughs) How about that for a deep dive? I had to go back and look it up and I totally remember it now. It's like, oh my gosh. I was a Saturday morning cartoon aficionado, so that's why I remember it very vividly. And for me, also Spaceballs and Home Alone were the things I remember John Candy from the most. And I don't think I ever heard a bad rumor about the guy either. And if I recall, I remember thinking Left Eye burning her boyfriend's house down was the most gangster-ish ever. But that's the kid in me. At the end of the day, I was happy that no one got hurt. Just shifting a little bit, thinking about movies as well. So confession, I didn't see Pulp Fiction until 2016, maybe 2017. And I regret it waiting so long because when I finished watching, I just was like, I love this. Why did I wait so long to see this? Like you, Robin, talked about getting your screenwriting book. I remember hearing from people who were actually in like undergrad graduate school, like Quentin Tarantino was kind of the orbit that everyone (laughs) was kind of circling. And other things in movies that were going on, I remember Forrest Gump being so big. I think every sketch comedy show (laughs) and then some had a parody of it. I remember my mom watching it on VHS in the living room, and I kept asking her questions about it because I was too young to fully grasp the context of what was going on. I also watched True Lies on home video, too, and loved that. And I know it has some problematic elements to it, definitely, but... Jamie Lee Curtis and her underwear getting down was at the same time sexy and hilarious and probably one of the most talked about sequences in the film. For sure. I remember the obsession with ER. It's been streaming. I've watched a few episodes and it still holds up really well. I enjoyed doing some rewatching. I know people were riveted by how fast paced it was and all the medical terminology that I jokingly think made viewers feel smarter. (laughs) The top 20 R&B singles of 1994, according to Playback FM. I'll Make Love to You by Boys to Men. This is one of those impossible to escape songs. As usual, Babyface's pen was on fire. Take a Bow by Madonna. As we both mentioned, love this song. Madonna and Babyface wrote it together. I felt like the first time when I heard it, it kind of stopped me in my tracks. It just kind of had that kind of feel to it. Creep by TLC, 
Bump and Grind by R. Kelly. It's really difficult to discuss him, but we kind of can't talk about R&B historically or academically without acknowledging his influence and impact. That door that Silk opened with Freak Me, Robert Kelly bulldozed. 90s male R&B truly changed with that 12-play album and this hit song. On Bended Knee by Boys to Men, Cry For You by Jodeci, Anytime, Anyplace by Janet Jackson, Without You by Mariah Carey, Here Comes the Hot Stepper by Amy Kamozi. I always laugh at how much my mother loves this song. Like... <laughs> This would come on the radio and we would just be jamming together. And even to this day, if she hears that song, she just stops whatever she's doing and tries to move around a bit. Understanding by Escape, Back and Forth by Aaliyah. So, so freaking excited. We get to go in depth on Aaliyah later on in this episode. I Want to Be Down by Brandy, The Most Beautiful Girl in the World by Prince. This is truly Prince at his best. You Gotta Be by Desiree. This is like one of those timeless, feel-good, inspirational songs that we always need. Stroke You Up by Changing Faces. If You Love Me by Brownstone. Before I Let Go by Blackstreet. Absolutely love this song. Dave Hollister's vocals just give me goosebumps. Man, he's so great. What a Man by Salt and Pepper featuring En Vogue. Functified by The Brat. You Mean the World to Me by Tony Braxton. Wow. Okay. So now we're getting into the too many songs to mention territory for me. So to be diplomatic, I'll stick with what I enjoyed in 94 that won't be referenced later or isn't considered hip hop or rap. Of course, Take a Bow by Madonna. I mentioned a little earlier, but this needs re-emphasis. Before your Billie Eilish's and whomever Gen Z is listening to, no shade, but Madonna's musical wingspan busted barriers for some of pop's biggest stars today, I believe. This was one of the best ballads ever recorded and written. Anytime, Anyplace by Janet Jackson. A song I only listened to alone in my room with headphones because <laughs> I was like 12 and this felt inappropriate. <laughs> And also The Most Beautiful Girl in the World by Prince. Little backstory. I was obsessed with General Hospital during this period. And I thought that it was so cool that he had one of the stars, Vanessa Marcel, in the video. Mm -hmm. And of course, I love the song, too. To me, this is a wedding or I'm having a baby girl slash I've got a daughter kind of theme song. The line, you're the reason that God made a girl is just this, one of the sweetest things I've ever heard. You Gotta Be by Desiree. This, for all intents and purposes, was a crossover jam, but you know what? I don't think I heard this one on Black radio, hmm. which is a whole other topic. <laughs> so it's a story many of us know, and when looking back on history, it comes up a lot. A Black artist not fitting neatly into a particular sound is sometimes not marketed to Black people, if at all. Cree Summer's fantastic album is another example of this, but that's opening another rabbit hole, right? Preach. So <laughs> More on that later. But back on track, You Gotta Be, I agree, is a deeply inviting, inspirational song. Stroke You Up by Changing Faces. I mean, the title is the name of my own personal Quiet Storm playlist that you can find on Spotify. You Mean the World to Me by Tony Braxton. Again, just fabulous. I don't think there's a lackluster single on that album. And speaking of Here Comes the Hot Stepper, why was this song utilized for the movie Ready to Wear? That's my main reference for this song because I remember the video. Yeah. And I just think it's funny that it's on the soundtrack. <laughs> I 
The 37th Annual Grammy Awards aired on March 1st, 1995 to honor music from 1994. And the nominees for Best Rhythm and Blues Song are I'll Make Love to You by Boys to Men, You Mean the World to Me by Tony Braxton, When Can I See You by Babyface, If That's Your Boyfriend, He Wasn't Last Night by Michelle Nadegiocello, and Body and Soul by Anita Baker. And the winner... I'll Make Love to You by Boys to Men. Because I have my own kind of perception of the Grammys, I thought that they would go for When Can I See You by Babyface. Mm -hmm. But certainly the bigger song won. I'll Make Love to You being played so much made me low-key hate it. <laughs> my God, this era was so saturated with the song. I escaped it any chance I could. There are just so many better songs on two I'd rather listen to. No, it's so true. They really kind of ran that song into the Earth's core. It was huge. Voice to Men were on top of the world, all of that. So I totally understand them winning. But if I had to give the award out, I probably would have gave it to Anita Baker. I mean, Body and Soul is such an amazing song. It's like top tier Anita Baker, in my opinion. Excellent choice. Also, it's nice to see Michelle with a nomination, considering the tone, content, and delivery of the music on Plantation Lullabies. Even that particular track. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like that nomination actually surprised me a bit, but I'm really glad to see her on the list. Doing the impossible, this is where we choose some of our favorite tracks from the year. I am starting us off with Usher's Think of You. Now, why you want to play love games? I mentioned in our previous episode that Usher has a cool kid swag that could make the susceptible swoon. Even before You Make Me Wanna and only 14 years old, he worked on her and released his first self-titled album. Think of You paints a portrait of a lovelorn heartthrob who is far too preoccupied with a girl who did him wrong. A prince kneeling in sorrow as flowers lay scattered at his bended knee, never reaching their intended recipient because she done messed up. A Southern guy with roots in Atlanta, Usher got his big shot with LaFace and this project was spearheaded by Sean Puffy Combs. The super singable lyrics by Usher himself with Faith Evans and Donnell Jones, two powerhouse vocalists themselves, bring the emotion. With samples from Just Rhyming with Biz by Big Daddy Kane featuring Biz Marquis adds the hip hop flair and jazz man Ronnie Laws' tidal wave smoothing the sharp edges. Think of You is an understated hip hop soul treasure a persona, an artist, a young kid you could crush on that was a part of the new wave of fresh faces in the R&B teen idol circuit. Yeah, this yo, this was the song that made me a huge Usher fan. Had his poster on my wall and everything. I plan on delving deeper into this in a later episode about the adultification of R&B and that first single that Usher released on this, Can You Get With It? Being kind of the prime example of the discussion. Because when you think about it, this song, Think Of You, feels far more age appropriate and it actually really worked. I mean, this ended up being the bigger and better single. Absolutely. Speaking of superlative teen R&B idols, Aaliyah's back and forth and Aaliyah herself, born singer and dancer, was only 15 when she told us to get up and let this funky mellow groove get us in the mood for dancing and having a good time on this first single off of her debut album. Aaliyah's ethereal nature, accompanied by her honey-soaked singing range, hip-hop baggy 90s fashion with a flawless hair and makeup routine made her impossible to ignore. Her shining personality would carry her to astronomical success throughout her short-lived career. 
I hesitate to say more at the moment because Aaliyah will certainly be brought back into our conversations during the decade. And it's kind of hard for me not to feel a heavy weight of melancholy whenever her place in history graces us with its presence. Additionally, Back and Forth samples from two well-known pioneers of funk, Cameo's original Back and Forth and Flashlight by Parliament Funkadelic. I think of the video anytime the song is mentioned. I remember being in a trance when this video came out. Aaliyah just looked like the coolest girl in the world, something I so badly wanted to be. The confidence she had was inspiring to me, who just always felt like such an insecure mess during my teen years. And Aaliyah and I being a year apart made her an instant best friend in my head. This was a great debut single, and honestly, it still goes hard at the cookouts and family functions. And come to find out, she was just as shy as we were. <laughs> like, <laughs> that goes to show us, in retrospect, it's all an image. This is not necessarily who these people truly mm-hmm. are. Aaliyah seemed more likely introverted. She loved horror movies, come to find out. She just so happened to enjoy doing the things that put you in the spotlight. True. Another pick of mine here is Soul For Real's Candy Rain. Heavy D protégés Brian, Chris, Dre, and Jason Dalyrimple were Uptown Records' Jackson 5 new edition combo, giving us an unforgettable chorus from the pop-bop Candy Rain late in the year that went all the way to number one on Billboard. My classmates would sing it during class session lulls, a constant radio play. It is the perfect nostalgia fuel that is feel-good with wonderful vocal stackings led by Jason or Jace as he's known by. And although I'm partial to the remix which I think is one of the best R&B remixes of the decade, I do love the original. And it's impossible not to see that Heavy D was trying to make these guys the Jackson 5 of a new generation. Candy Rain, it's like, it has such irresistible charm and sweetness to it. It's really a feel-good R&B jam through and through. Yes, I'm glad you mentioned the remix. I also love that one too. I think that one got just as much radio play as the original, if I believe. For sure. My next pick here is Brownstone's If You Love Me. Nominated for a Best R&B Performance Grammy Award, If You Love Me has a killer beat backed by three amazingly strong vocalists, Monica Doby, Charmaine Maxwell, and Nikki Gilbert. It's another girl group anthem, a command of respect and visibility in a relationship. And if this is a relationship, you better act like your mind and the light and the dark. The original LA-based trio were signed to Michael Jackson's MJJ label, and this was their single from their debut album, From the Bottom Up. The group has seen its share of lineup changes throughout the years. No change more sad than when Charmaine passed away from an accidental fatal cut at the age of 46. Fun fact, the song was produced by Dave Jam Hall, whom I mentioned earlier. He's the former husband of comedian Wanda Sykes and a hitmaker for Mariah Carey, Madonna, and Mary J. Blige. And some of Mary's best, right? Love No mm-hmm. Limit, Reminisce, and You Remind Me. That girl group tidal wave in the 90s was strong. (laughs) But Brownstone broke through because of those incredible vocals. I mean, you got three women sounding like a whole choir. I love the message of the song. The lyrics are so endearing and so real. Also, just shout out to Nikki Gilbert. I truly think she was one of the best female vocalists of the 90s. Yes, they do sound like a whole choir. Also, now that I think about it, wasn't Nikki on that episode of Martin when Martin was trying to be a music manager? (laughs) Yes, she was. That episode is funny. My last pick is Immature and their song Never Lie. The cutest 13-year-old you done ever. Marquise Batman Houston, Jerome Romeo Jones, and new member Kelton L.D.B. Kessie elevated their sound and image on their second album, Playtime is Over, Where Never Lie Lives trading in their oversized cross colors with oversized blazers. 
this is a platonic ballad of allegiance. You know, when you find that friend that makes you want to be your best self and you have to declare after some miscommunication, maybe that you'll never lie to them again. Marquise is begging in the most reserved but vulnerable of ways. I'm not sure if we talk enough about Immature's tenure as charting artists. Beyond a gimmick or quick kitty cash-in, Immature created great music that transcended any age limits. You're so right. I mean, we really don't talk enough about them as artists with like a consistently solid discography. This is my favorite song by them because of the very youthful sounding vocals of Marquise Houston. There is like a teeny bopper element to it, but the way Marquise also sounds incredibly emotionally mature at the same time, just his vocal runs on this alone are amazing. So many folks were trying to create the next Jackson 5, as we've said before, and this song definitely falls into that lineage. But I also love the use of the word friend in this song. There's something just so, so sweet about it. Exactly. They're not singing about a girl or love, just friendship. It was a nice vacation away from the adultification you mentioned. For my first pick, You Will Know by Black Men United. This to me might be one of the most important R&B songs of the 90s. In the spirit of We Are the World, it included over 25 male R&B artists and groups singing together in harmony, eagles aside. It appears on the Jason's Lyric soundtrack, a very good soundtrack, by the way, that does not get the love it deserves. You Will Know was written by a young D'Angelo before his Brown Sugar debut. It's just a whole lot of magic right here. Seriously. The writer Brandy Victorian called it the greatest moment in male R&B history, quote unquote. Listen, I can't even name all the R&B artists on this song because we'll be here all day. But here are some highlights. Tevin Campbell, Gerald Levert, Elle DeBarge, DRS, Aaron Hall, Christopher Williams, Mint Condition, Boys to Men, and Lenny Kravitz on guitar. Ashley and I have been trying to tell y'all, <laughs> Lenny is so versatile. Here he is again on an R&B classic. To me, this song is just so inspiring and beautifully sung by these men. I love the video so much. It makes me a little emotional to see these brothers come together like this. Feels like we'll never see anything like this again. But in my attempt at optimism, maybe one day? Not sure if we'll ever see anything like this again, but it's definitely possible. And you also have to love how all of these men came together to create this song. Right. It's just a really beautiful and powerful moment. On to my next pick. At Your Best, You Are Love by Aaliyah. First time I heard At Your Best, You Are Love was when it was sung by the Isley Brothers. My parents are huge Isley Brothers fans, making me a huge Isley Brothers fan. Something I actually had in common with Aaliyah. As much as I love the Isley Brothers version, Ronald Isley gives a gorgeous vocal performance. I think I love Aaliyah's even more. She brings such a youthful vulnerability to this song. This song also speaks to what made Aaliyah as an artist and vocalist so special. Her version of the song is more hypnotic and haunting. If someone didn't know any of Aaliyah's music and they asked me what they should play first, I'd tell them to play this. Oh, and also the remix goes really hard too. Yes, this is one where I love the remix more, but I will certainly listen to the original as well. And yes, that taking an old classic and making it your own really fits with this example. My next pick is Old Time Sake by Sweet Sable. No, 
I wasn't smoking blunts and sipping Heineken's, <laughs> but I still love this song. This is Sweet Sable's biggest hit, and it's a song that leaves an indelible mark because the moment you play this, heads will start nodding. It's automatic. You are immediately seduced by this gritty, bluesy, soulful track, which relies on a heavy sample of Eddie Kendrick's masterful song, Intimate Friend. I think that sample makes the song so spellbinding and so irresistible. Old Time's Sake appears on the Above the Rim soundtrack, another great soundtrack, by the way. This song is truly hip-hop soul at its finest. And sadly, Sweet Sable passed away after being diagnosed with COVID-19 in 2020. I thank her for giving us this banger and allowing me to smoke my imaginary blunts and drink my imaginary Heineken in high school. I really thought I was growing when this song came on. For my next pick, Sending My Love by Janae. So I mentioned this in the last episode. Janae is one of my favorite girl groups of the 90s. Their debut album, Pronounced Janae, in my opinion, is an overlooked classic. We just don't discuss that album and them enough for me. This is their third single release off the debut. And it's such a perfectly constructed R&B song. That bass, those beautiful harmonies, the infectious chorus. It's one of those feel-good love songs I miss hearing on the radio. It just takes you to a completely blissful place. I definitely would add this to the proto-neo-soul category as well. I think this song is perfect, and no matter how many times I've heard this song, I just want to hear it again. I'm starting to think Jeanne popped too early, perhaps. I read once somewhere online about the neo-soul movement having their share of artists fall through the cracks and the shadows of the few that went on to stardom. But when it comes to Jeanne, something tells me that if they orbited the Philly New York scene here in 99-2000 with their debut, your mention of them would be a little different maybe. This is such a great observation. Sometimes artists really do come out ahead of their time. Like in another two years, if they debuted, yeah, we might be having a different conversation about them and how they're remembered and how they're discussed and celebrated. For my next pick, Willing to Forgive by Aretha Franklin. Y'all, the undisputed queen of soul, who had been making music since the early 1960s, gave us jams in the 90s. One of my favorite obsessions is observing an artist's career over decades. It is a truly difficult task, and I give any artist credit who has found ways to stay true to their craft and transcend at the same time. So up until this point, Aretha had been doing this quite flawlessly. In the 1970s, into the 80s, she was making hit songs and maintaining her relevance. And now here we are in the 90s. She's continued successfully moving through the decade. This is one of the reasons why she's one of my all-time favorite artists. I marvel at her musicianship as much as her vocals. The crucial ingredient to crafting hits through the decades is knowing who to work with. This time, Aretha collaborated with Babyface. And of course, he had been for years creating R&B classics for an endless array of artists. Babyface's superpower is knowing how to craft a song around a particular artist's persona. Willing to Forgive was perfectly made for Aretha Franklin. Babyface was quite familiar with Aretha's themes of heartbreak and the messiness of love. This song feels so much within the DNA of her previous hits over the decades. A woman who learns her man is doing her wrong, but she's trying to forgive and not forget. But there's a twist. This time, she tells the man she might mess around on him too. 
I love the way Aretha approaches this song almost casually. It has that I've been here before feeling, and there's a lot of humor in the lyrics. That cheap perfume line is so funny to me. The humor really takes center stage in this song, but you also feel the pain too. That's what Aretha does so masterfully. She's so good at articulating the complexities of heartbreak and heartache and every emotion in between. You got to say that cheap perfume. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. The chorus sparked my memory of this track. I'm glad I went back to (laughs) re-listen. These lyrics are absolutely hilarious. And Aretha's inflections and the way she draws emotion from listeners is so key to this song for me. I'm totally with you in the way in which Babyface crafted the song that aligns so well with Aretha's musical DNA for some really solid work here. And wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm going back to what you're saying. She she paid the rent and washed the clothes. Girl, she was doing way too much. Like, this reminds me (laughs) of that Shirley Brown song, Woman to Woman, from the 70s. Like, why are we paying car notes, child? (laughs) And just want to do an honorable mention, Barry White's Practice What You Preach, another legendary artist who had a hit in the 90s with the help of Gerald Levert. And how many of us literally looked up to all of the exclusively Black for me women <laughs> over 30 swooning over practice what you preach? And now that I'm over 30, I'm swooning too because I can see the allure of this song. Yo, that, yo, this was a song. The baby boomers went crazy when this came out. <laughs> and as a grown woman now myself, yes, I appreciate this song in a whole new way. Completely. <laughs> School is in session. So with our legacy segment, we just want to have longer discussions regarding artists, careers, albums, moments, and movements in the 90s, trying to add nuance and to contextualize music history for y'all. Because this music history is massive and we can't dismiss it. So let's embrace it and all the complexities that come with it. And there was no denying the drive, the determination of one 15-year-old in 1994 who wanted to share her voice with the world. And my homage to this prodigal Black girl is titled, Just For Me. Like the relaxer kit, Brandy's debut as the new ideal image for young Black girls. Stewing in the morning grind, I needed an escape, a quick fix, a preset to shake off my discontent of having to do that thing that millions of able, age-appropriate folks do, go to work. I don't know what cosmic influence compelled me on that May 2022 weekday to bring up Brandy's first album on Spotify. But the excitement that surged through my soul while listening literally felt like going back in time. I could smell my old bedroom again. Mostly a linen scent with the wafts of whatever eclectic dishes my neighbors cooked regularly. I could hear my mother's voice calling me to watch my baby brothers again or do the dishes, her talking on the phone with her friends, or laughing at some syndicated sitcom. And I could just feel the energy of my youth once more. Whatever Brandy's team cooked up for her music career and matching image as a figure for a young audience to mirror worked on me hook, line, and sinker. I spent months begging my mother for braids like Brandy. I begrudgingly never got them. Something about false hair will break off my already nice long hair. But I didn't want my nice long hair. I wanted Brandy braids. 
And the album, I absorbed like it was a life force. I studied the liner notes, the photos inside for hours. I listened and memorized every song and interlude and can still sing each to this day. And listening to it on that May day gave me a sense of joy I truly haven't had, I don't think ever. It was a reminder of how vital history and memory is to our lives to help us continue on, to try our best to make more good memories, not just for ourselves, but for others. When the track Give Me You crescendoed, I texted my co-host, here Robin, what do you think about doing a podcast on 90s R&B? Brandy began singing in church at the age of two in Macomb, Mississippi, but she can easily call the L.A. area her foundation. The family relocated when she was only four, where she spent time trying to model her own idol, Whitney Houston, and singing when she could with a group at various talent shows. Her first milestone was likely her background singing production deal with Immature, continuing to audition and putting in work to perfect her singing range and style. Her second audition with Atlantic Records A&R director Dara Williams and Sylvia Roan at 14 saw a goal achieved. With her dream on track, she signed a record contract in 1993, bright-eyed and ready to work on her solo debut that would be self-titled. One of the producers, Keith Crouch, a notable songwriter with Michael Jackson's publishing company and worked with Karen Wheeler, Elle DeBarge, and Tony Tony Tony, had the first inklings of I Want to Be Down when Williams heard it. Over the moon about the production, Williams envisioned it as Brandy's first single. Crouch was a latecomer on the project, yet four of his five tracks became singles, the aforementioned plus Best Friend, Baby, and Brokenhearted. Crouch would describe being in the studio with Brandy as a pleasant and productive experience, and her voice lush with Southern ruts, both pop and blues in a way that exceeded her years on the planet at the time, but never losing its sweet innocence in every intonation. So if the row don't fit me, got to be moving on. And her opening track is a quiet anthem about self-acceptance. With the right dash of attitude, Brandy has talked about invoking the Clark sisters and her fave Whitney Houston on this song. Now Baby was met with initial trepidation, But the maturity behind the song was balanced with her own spin, channeling her own feelings that she had on a crush. Not just some concocted beyond her years fantasy by anyone or thing. Like Brandy or not, as much as my childhood friend Cherie would be on Momager Watch about how the Norwood matriarch was known to run a tight ship to maintain a squeaky persona for the singer, a lot of it was Brandy's own sense of self a whimsical naivete that was welcomed by more conservative parents, certainly, and an alluring goodness that was still fun and exciting for her younger fans. In the soup of raunch and adultification, the things that haunt us now about this music and its history, Brandy was the breath of fresh air that was absolutely positively needed. The entire album is truly unified in theme, sound, and an image-declaring powerhouse. For a teenage Brandy, it was this consistent POV that helped ground her for fans invested in the Black teen music boom of the day. How sweet is it that Best Friend was originally planned as a duet with her brother Ray J, whom the song is about? And with undeniably strong B-sides like the ballad I'm Yours, Sunny Day, As Long As You're Here, Always On My Mind, and even the I Dedicate interludes that Brandy really wanted to be a whole song, put you in an earnest mood for warm daylight and doing the shoulder bounce. Included in the sentiment are two other notable tracks. Love is on My Side was written by a then-teen himself, Robin Thicke, who also layered on some background vocals. It's so fascinating to know this and hear a bit of Love is on My Side and some of his work on songs like Can You Believe on his second album, The Evolution of Robin Thicke. Give Me You rounds out her work, going back to how Brandy started, with a tune she can take to the pulpit. Here, she's praising the Lord for being a friend we can count on in a covert, modernized way that gives Sister Act 2's Joyful Joyful a subtle run for its money. 
Without question, this Grammy-nominated album has reverberated in the minds and intentional hearts of some of music's revered, like Jill Scott, Erica Badu, Maxwell, Britney Spears, and others. And when I say others, I mean others like Solange, who staunchly and publicly stood by Brandy as an artist in response to the backlash about her 211 album, noting, quote, you really should know about deep Brandy album cuts before you are giving a grade or a score to any R&B artist, end quote. Rightfully shading people in paid positions discussing music genres they have no deep knowledge of nor cultural proximity to the work, Solange reminded us that the history of an artist's labor can be pivotal to our understanding of their current output. And it all started in 1994, when Brandy planted herself into the consciousness of many young Black girls like myself and Solange with a nearly flawless solo debut for a teenager whose sound, whose voice is now venerated by a multi-generational audience. You know, this album really does feel like a time machine, taking me back to a very specific time during my deeply vulnerable high school years. I remember buying the cassette tape at Record Town and feeling like I could relate to Brandy since we were like a year apart, and her carefully constructed image felt very accessible at the time. I Want to Be Down is such a dope song. Best friend, baby, brokenhearted also stayed in heavy rotation for me, especially the remix with Wanye from Boys to Men that happened a little later. Also for me, what really set Brandy apart is that when revisiting this album, there's an overall optimism here that feels so refreshing. It's a really strong debut from an artist who had such a tremendous impact on contemporary R&B. Being able to discuss and revisit this album and give Brandy her flowers is a major reason why I was so excited to do this podcast. And I'm really excited you decided to do it. Who would have thought one album would yes. spark this? Crazy, sexy, cool. TLC comes of age. So let's just start with the fact that this album made TLC the best-selling girl group in the U.S. The first girl group in the world to reach diamond status, meaning 10 million albums sold. It has since been certified 12 times platinum, winning multiple awards. It's also considered by Rolling Stone magazine to be one of the greatest albums of all time. It's still, even to this day, hailed as a major triumph in R&B music. With their first album, Ooh, on the TLC tip, in a previous episode, Ashley so eloquently described the brilliant arrival of this girl group trio as something music had never quite seen before. These sex-positive ladies burst onto the music scene with colorful clothes, strong yet accessible personalities, and exciting, innovative songs about love, sex, friendship, and the power of sisterhood. Their image was just liberating to witness. Suddenly, we were in the presence of women who were redefining and freeing themselves of the constraints of what women, Black women and girls specifically, were supposed to be, how they dressed, how they acted, etc. It was radical, and I don't think they are given enough credit for how radical their debut album was and what it symbolized. And how do you even follow that up? With Crazy Sexy Cool, TLC were embracing their distinct personalities and aligning themselves collectively at the same time as a force to be reckoned with. The album is astonishing in just how different it is, and also felt miles away from their debut, sonically and lyrically. Crazy Sexy Cool was R&B fused with hip-hop beats, but there was also a left-of-center vibe in the approach. This wasn't the hip-hop soul of Mary J. Blige. It wasn't the R&B pop of Janet Jackson. And it wasn't the harmonized sophistication of En Vogue, SWV, and John A. 
there was a strong new wave pop appeal to Crazy Sexy Cool, melded with a tremendous amount of sonic innovation due to some of the production being by ATL creative masterminds, Organized Noise. Songs also written and produced by Babyface, Jermaine Dupri, Puff Daddy, and the often underrated Dallas Austin provide TLC with a much more mature, edgier, and soulful sound than their first effort. Creep is my all-time favorite TLC song, and it was the album's first single, which really announced how bold and progressive this album would be. Creep is a jam through and through. Lyrically, it challenged the notions of relationships, where a cool and totally in control T-Boz sings about creeping on her man who doesn't pay her enough attention. There's no tortured soul here. There's a liberating sense of freedom regarding this sort of romantic vengeance. It's teasing and sensuous in a way that only T-Boz could deliver. The entire album frames itself around this narrative. These women are flipping the script, rewriting the playbook, and redefining and reshaping R&B and pop music as effortlessly as they please. Songs like Kick Your Game, Case of the Fake People, and Switch have their signature playfulness to them. But these songs are also bolder and richer in production. The hip-hop elements are fused so superbly into the R&B sound. I mention this because we are in a period in 1994 where R&B and hip-hop are becoming even more heavily codependent on one another, for better or worse. On this album, it's for the better. Appearances by Busta Rhymes, Five Dog, and Andre from Outkast only add more dimensions and layers to the album's inspired vision. Even though during the making of this album, Left Eye was embroiled in legal troubles due to the arson, her contributions still carry weight. Her lyricism is intricate and some of her best work as a rapper is on this album. The slow jams here are far more risque. The babyface penned hit single Red Light Special feels light years away from the song Baby Baby Baby. Red Light Special is another level of sexual seduction and bedroom balladry. These ladies are in complete control of their desires. Side note, I always think of this video when I hear the song. That strip poker scene with the male models is melded into my brain for the rest of my life. Also, let me mention another standout track, their remake of Prince's If I Was Your Girlfriend. It's a favorite Prince song of mine, and their cover is pretty remarkable. In an alternate universe, I see Prince producing a whole solo album for T-Boz. To me, there's always been something very Paisley Park about T-Boz's persona. But the song that brought this album into its mammoth success is the organized noise produced Waterfalls. From a production level, the music is so brilliantly innovative. Content-wise, it's a message song, a cautionary tale. It's so difficult to create cautionary tales that aren't corny. Only TLC could pull it off with a level of depth and sincerity that never leans into that after-school special cheese. The chorus is catchy, Left Eye's rap verse is amazing. The video is a technical achievement, and this cemented the enduring legacy of TLC. Crazy Sexy Cool is a masterful achievement, repositioning the landscape of R&B, hip-hop, and pop all at once. There was no denying the impact and influence this album would have on the rest of the decade, and for the next generation of artists, they had a new blueprint. Yes. Where does one even start discussing this record, especially if you're old enough to remember that TLC was all over TV and radio with the mammoth promotion of Crazy Sexy Cool? So I remember I had the album, like the CD, 
but I cannot for the life of me remember what happened to the actual case and cover, which drove me nuts for a few years, actually. <laughs> so I had to get the small CD book just to protect it because I played it a lot and I carried it with me a lot to and from school. They even appeared on an episode of Living Single where Overton couldn't stop having seductive dreams about the trio because they were so red hot and in the consciousness mm. and fabric of pop culture. This more mature turn was a bit of a shock to my system initially. During that time, I didn't fully grasp that you could evolve and grow as time moves on because I was young and I didn't quite have the experience of that just yet myself. But when I spent time with Crazy Sexy Cool, I began to understand the meaning and evolution in your art and expression other parts of your whole more. That album was the one album that helped me even understand that about myself. Like the Brownstone single, I heard it through the grapevine are just some of the insightful tidbits we came across while doing our research or from distant recollections passed down that we wanted to mention. So, Ashley, what you done heard through the grapevine? Well, I done heard that Dallas Austin was not a fan of the fellows of Boys to Men after their first album became a success and only worked on one track on their second album that came out in August of 94. He recounts being in the studio with them and the ego and cockiness was so off-putting that he didn't want to do more than one or two songs. They even initially rejected I'll Make Love to You that Babyface performed for them and had to be told by a higher up, maybe even commanded to do it. That's really, really interesting. It also goes into possibly why these dudes were the biggest R&B group one minute and then very suddenly they kind of weren't. Even if the rumors of them being difficult aren't true, once it's out there, producers probably didn't want drama. 100%. So this was our look back on 1994. Please visit rhythmandschooledpodcast.com for our archive of shows, notes, and references for your own independent schooling. And get to know us. We fly. Our email is the411 at rhythmandschooledpodcast.com if you have any feedback and want to speak out on your favorite R&B artists of the 90s. We'll be sure to read and share on the show in the future. Also, follow the podcast on Instagram at rhythm underscore and underscore schooled. And be sure to listen to the podcast on Spotify, Apple, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Pandora, and iHeartRadio now. To hear curated mixtapes for each episode, find them exclusively on Spotify. Until next time, be well. Peace. <laughs>